Ready your engines! Mumbrella's Automotive Marketing Summit is next Wednesday, 21st of September at the Sofitel Melbourne. From discussions on electric vehicles to driving brand advocacy with technology, don't miss the automotive marketing event of the year. Book now at mumbrella.com.au forward slash automotive. Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jaspin, and today it's all about Nine as the self proclaimed Australia's media company kicks off upfront season. The media giant dominates headlines this week as it also avoided its first newspaper strike since its merger with Fairfax in 2018, with union members agreeing to a final offer tabled earlier this week. Plus, the Logie switches lanes, moving to Channel 7. And finally, you'll hear a special conversation on the branding of the monarchy. We see a change for the first time in 70 years following the passing of Elizabeth II. We'll be joined by Shapeshifter Consulting's Al Crawford and Hivemind Australia's Karina Keisler. Joining me once again today is Acting Managing Editor Andrew Banks. Hey, Banksy. And Acting Deputy Editor Emma Shepard. Hey, Em. Hey, hey. Good to see you both. I'm looking forward to heading down to Luna Park for the first Big Upfronts event with you guys this afternoon. Absolutely. I can't wait to have a beverage or two with the industry and celebrate what's to come for the network. And of course, all on Nine's Dime. Banksy, this is your first one as well. How are you feeling about it? I can't wait. It looks pretty exciting down at Luna Park tonight. So yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Well, why don't we start right there? So um, by the time you're listening to this, I'm sure you'll see everything coming out of the event all across the trade press, if that's where you've been looking. Um, we're heading off to the event just after recording, which is being hosted, as we said, at Luna Park. Um, we had the briefing in Nine Headquarters yesterday. Um, not many major, major standouts this year, but um, why don't we run through some of the top line stuff? Um, Nine obviously splits itself through its TV publishing and audio divisions. Why don't we start with TV? Yes, so uh, in Total TV, Nine announced a Nine Now rebrand, which is quite exciting. It looks really fresh. Uh, It's making it look more like a streaming platform. They're introducing a start over button as well, so you can watch the show when you want. Uh, They also uh, just announced Nine News Tasmania Bulletin will be produced by Nine uh, and broadcast by Nine's Tasmanian affiliate live from a new Hobart studio seven days a week. So that's really exciting for the Tassie people down there. Yeah, um, I think they they sort of described the new Nine Now platform as a converged experience with simplicity of broadcast TV and the interactivity of digital. So um, certainly an interesting experience. One of those uh, features was, you know, when you go onto the Nine Now app, the main channel will already be playing, um, which mm-hmm. I guess, um, as, as one of the other journos mentioned or asked, I should say, in the briefing, um, one of the questions was raised, well, how, how will that affect reporting on actual viewing figures, which will be interesting to see how they do that, as I don't believe any of the other platforms have that as of yet. Is that right? No, absolutely. The first time. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, there was, there was no real major, major sales pitch on um, this front. Um, and some new some new shows, though, coming to the network. Um, we have the Summit the summit, Gordon Ramsay's food stars, and my mom, your da- mom, to name a few. Any any thoughts on those ones? 
I'm really looking forward to the summit. Uh, it's produced by Endemol Shine. It's set in Queenstown in New Zealand. Supposedly there's going to be um, 10 or 15 people that will star in this and it's basically a journey to the summit to the top. Whoever makes it, it's a bit of an adventure. They they end up uh, being able to be in the running for a million dollars and it's been described as, you know, the new or the next survivor. So I'm really excited to see what's, you know, what what's, what's going to happen with this show. Yeah, the... um. The, the content side that they've laid out, obviously Nine has that maybe different approach, which I'm sure we'll also see with Paramount's upfronts at the start next month, is kind of balancing that split with original content, which will be obviously behind that paywall on Stan, mm. um, and then your, 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 your content, which will be available on Nine now, and Nine, and then I guess some of the stuff that we'll see across both as well. It still looks based on, I guess... Um, the initial look at things like they're still aiming for those kind of young core demos with um you know some of those major formats like maths returning the block which i think has got a little bit of a spin on it lego masters um things like that um and there was a couple of um more drama based ones as well can you tell us about any of those the one that i was most interested to see is the two-part miniseries of I think that's going to be quite a heartfelt, sad story, but that uh, kicks off the TV viewing for 2023 next year. So that'll be interesting to see how that kind of goes down with the audience. Um, Big Miracles was another one that's supposed to be a bit of a tearjerker. Um, you know, that's a journey of 10 uh, couples that have gone through IVF. So, you know, I'm sure that this is a really big space and, a, and an area that's quite sensitive uh, for a lot of Australians. So I think that it'll be interesting to see how well that goes. But I'm really excited to see see that. Uh, that one's called Big Miracles, by the way. And then um, after they introduced Snack Masters last year, they're also bringing in another new food format on Gordon Ramsay's Food Stars, as well as My Mom, Your Dad. Your My Mom, Your Dad, that's <laughs> right. Um, I think um, produced by the same people that did maths, but uh, supposedly very different in, uh, I guess, thematic feel. Um Nine kind of emphasize themselves as the network where you can kind of find something for everyone. It kind of seems like what that's what they're sort of trying to present with this slate. Would would you say so? I think so, definitely. You've got a bit of, you know, the Love Island, the maps, so the the younger demos, uh, and then they're creeping into big miracles and, and new formats, you know, such as My Mum, Your Dad, which I think will have a bit more of an older skew. So, yeah, still to come this year, we've obviously got um, Love Island Australia and Lego Masters Christmas. And then returning uh, sport, we've got Australian Open, of course, the NRL. And then returning formats, as we mentioned, there, such as travel guides, parental guidance, the hundred and more. Interestingly, it appears as though a few formats have been dropped. There were... Um, I guess, included in last year's scheduling. Those include Australian Ninja Warrior, a Celebrity Apprentice, um, Beauty and the Geek, and Buying Byron, to name a few of the top there. I just want to couple, say a couple of things, uh, just stuff that I pulled out, which, were, which, which I found interesting. Uh, apart from, I mean, putting the journalistic hat on about terms such as market-leading transformation, game-changing, you know, I, I think we need to temper that and just look at the actual benefits that obviously they're going to be for the consumer and for the advertiser. 
uh, a couple of things that stood out for me is that their live sport is now going to be streaming in HD at 50 frames per second with Dolby 5.1 sound. That's really, really good, I think, for sports fans. Um, but from an advertising point of view, that means that all their advertising will stream in full HD. So that gives uh, advertisers real scope there to get quality ads out to users. And they're targeting across Nine now and they're segmenting um, the platforms through their Nine tribes and their first party data. Um, that really sets them on the right path, I think, for the next you know few years on that. Let's move on to publishing and a couple of avenues here. We had focus on the expansion of the Brisbane Times or supercharging that brand, I think they said, and then also um, a few points on the AFR and then digital as well. What can we? Uh, what can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, Nine has just launched today's paper, which is a new daily downloadable version of the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspapers as well as developing a text to audio initiative where cur curated stories and news in the papers will be converted to audio with the use of uh, artificial intelligence. Um, and with obviously Nine so heavily investing in their tech, um, I'm sure that it's going to be, you know, state of the art. I hope that actually works out. Text to audio traditionally has always been, especially with AI, um, there's always that risk there. So I hope it is state of the art. Yeah, we'll see. It's obviously, you know, you can find it on other websites, such as I think Reuters has it already in place as well. So yeah. it, this isn't something new, but I guess across Australia's biggest uh, news platforms, it's sort of leading the way. But yeah, again, not a hell of a lot new there. It'll be interesting to see the uptake in those digital newspapers. Um, it's interesting, the, the Brisbane market push, Obviously, challenging um, News Corp, which has got a pretty strong footprint in Brisbane with the the Courier and Mail there, um, but not a whole lot of information specifically about what the actual investment is there. Um, and then, yeah, well, well I, th I think that's the main target. And then, obviously, out mm -hmm. west as well with WA Today, which is the last of those metro targets. Um, that AFR mentioned M obviously um as they mentioned it's in a well it is in a pretty strong position it doesn't really have a major challenger in that specific market but I, i'm not again entirely sure what was totally new what they're presenting about the afr um but yes indeed and one um small point again um they're bringing back the hats in good food i'm sure um everyone knows about the hats of uh, I guess Australia's version of Michelin stars in a sense so yeah probably a good thing to um to be returning them for that brand and the recognition of that um and then just finally we'll touch on audio quickly uh M, any major developments on this one uh nine announced it will launch its own cross-platform traffic brand this will be called NTN delivering the most uh, up-to-date and comprehensive traffic news this will allow advertisers access to a unique platform that can give brands the ability to own traffic updates across Australia's media companies. They also announced that the, they launched its world-class, according to Nine, addressable data targeting capability across its digital radio assets. Yes, so obviously that's that's what we've got now. Um, scheduling means that we're gonna we're recording before the actual event. But that's all the top line stuff. There are, well, we suspect some announcements to come for 
about Stan more specifically. Um, yeah, so I guess overall um, initial assessment would be no major risks from nine, but um, I guess not always a bad thing. Uh, it seems like incremental change and yeah, really continuing to build out its um, sort of total media proposition, kind of emphasizing its um, its hugeness this year as its uh, main point of difference compared to competitors. Coming up next, Nine avoids its journo strike plus the Logies move to seven. What was otherwise a bit of a slow news week for um, potentially obvious reasons, Nine's management managed to secure a deal at the 11th hour with its MEAA journalists. Um, um, Banksy, this kind of played out over quite a few weeks. Um, the strike was set to go ahead tomorrow, being Thursday and Friday, if the deal wasn't agreed. What, what can we uh, say about this one? I think it was a really delicate situation, a really tough position for Nine to be in. And I, I think they'd be very, very relieved heading into tonight's upfronts, knowing that that has been put to bed. I think that their offer was very generous in comparison to other um, companies that are working with their staff. I think they do quite a lot for their staff outside of their pay. That I think that the things that they offer the employees is, is very good. Um, and I'm really glad that the MEAA looked at the offer and, and was able to come to an agreement on it and, and really allow for what Nine has put in place, I guess, to, to be able to really now push forward and not have to rely on uh, things such as the the AAP component of of you know should the strike have taken place, I think everyone can now um, look forward to to building on what they're setting up, and um, it's a really a really good uh, result I think for the for the network and for for everybody involved. Yeah, a couple of um I guess the major sticking points in that final offer that was tabled by Nines Management and Managing Director of Publishing James Chessel. I think the the increase, obviously, from three point five to four percent in uh, obvious and two year deal rather than a one year deal. I think it's three point five percent still in the second year. But the um the extension of the automatic pay from grade four to grade five, I think, was also um, met pretty well by the union. Yes. So yeah, that that storyline now put to bed, and um, Nine has avoided its first journo strike since um, that Fairfax merger in. 2018. Yeah. One more story which lands with nine, but um, I guess bringing in another network here. The Logies have moved to Channel 7M. Yes, they have. Mm -hmm. And after a three-year break, uh, you know, I always thought that the Logie Awards, no one watched them anymore. But this year, nine gobbled up a huge 43.1% share. That was a mammoth five plus our broadcast of the awards after, you know, such a long time off TV. The awards averaged around 885,000 Metro viewers, uh, and that was the prelim figures between 7.30 and 11pm at night. Uh, the red carpet of rivals got about 826,000 from Metro, and those numbers are up on 2019's 866, when 9 had a 38.9% share. So I think that all in all, this is a really you know, successful win for seven. We'll, we'll wait and see what happens. 
Yeah, I think uh, with with the actual result, it, it's certainly good for Seven. The fact that they last had it in 95, I believe. I think it's interesting to see that Seven can now, you know, they've got big plans, it looks like, for how they're going to uh, do next year and beyond, which is quite interesting. And, and I guess those figures that you mentioned, M, are prefaced a lot by the, the, the MC, how things are run. The Tom Gleason, um, Amanda Keller episode really left a bad taste in the mouth for viewers at the time. I think prior to that, we had a few runs of the Logies where people just thought the whole thing lacked a bit of relevance, um, that, that people were voting through TV Week and it wasn't really legitimate because it wasn't classed as an industry-led um, awards as much as just a popularity contest. So I, it'd be interesting to see where Seven goes with that, with with our media and, and um, how they can create a format that, that's going to be successful for them. Right. Well, coming up next, we're talking about the branding of the Royals with Karina Keisler and Al Crawford. <laughs> So Queen Elizabeth II passed away last week in the headlines and uh, as the headlines and media coverage may have told you by now, um, while some of the discussions that have followed on from this may have been uh, premature, it has prompted discussion about how the brand of the royal family or where it goes from here, um, not just locally, but in all of the Commonwealth and how a figure such as the new king, Charles III, um, will stay relevant to a somewhat increasingly disenfranchised public. Here to discuss all of this today, uh, we have Karina Kaiser, reputation and crisis comms expert and strategist and marketing consultant, Al Crawford. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, Kevin. So, Karina, why don't we start with you? There's um, been a lot to wade through over the last week. Um, but I, I guess more locally in Australia, how do you think the the coverage has displayed, I guess, the, the feelings within the public and public opinion um, in this present moment on the monarchy? Look, I think there's, there's an immense respect for the Queen, whether or not you support the Royal House or otherwise. And I think um, the, the media has reflected that. I've heard commentary about there's been too much. Um, my personal view is if... If you've reigned for 69 years, you can have a week or two in the press um, and, and respectful press coverage, which is really great to see. I think the sentiment is, is one of sincere loss. You know, she's been a constant and, a, and like I said, regardless of your thoughts around the royal house, it, it, she, she has just been an incredible constant through, through a time of significant change and volatility volatility and I think we've desperately needed that particularly in recent years. Al, uh, get your thoughts on that one as well. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think, you know, this will be to some extent, you know, from a press coverage point of view, this is the uh, moment of respect. I think there will be a moment of scrutiny that follows it. And, you know, it's quite right in some ways, as Karina says, that this is a moment of celebration uh, for a life of service. The questions will start to emerge, I suspect, uh, after that in terms of what happens to the monarchy, but it is somewhat uh, quite literally trampling on somebody's grave, I think, at, at this stage to start to raise those things. So, of course, there will be a level of respect 
uh, that, that precedes that, and quite rightly so. Uh, and Karina, you mentioned the the longevity there. I think it was actually above the seventy year mark. Um, do you think you know in terms of such longevity? Uh, the brand has almost been tied to Elizabeth over this time. Are there any kind of hallmarks of how the crown has managed that longevity during her tenure? Uh, and what does this sort of say about brand management? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, amidst the volatility and the scandal over the years, she's been the exception to the rule. She's been strong and enduring and a female leader and, and one you can always rely upon to act in her traditional sense and demonstrate the heritage of the royal house, but but also showed humanity and this incredible commitment above and beyond her own personal desires. Um, and that that's a real strength of brand. I, I, I guess the, the pivot here is that society has progressed and as, you know, when there's a change in business, there needs to be a change in the brand and I don't mean logos, I mean how it feels and, and responds to things. So that's, that's the crossroads that we're at. And it's a fascinating period for for England and for Britain and for for the world, really, in terms of, of leadership and world stage. Al, with something like the the monarchy, the the um, the crown, it's obviously would try and stay away from making any sort of controversial statements. Or you know, it was mentioned before that she has avoided any sort of controversy or scandal during her time. What do you think brands could really, I guess, take from the progression in the reputation that the the Queen and her personal brand and the monarchy has seen over time without actually having to, I guess, go out on a limb on anything? Yeah, look, I mean, if look, generally, I think what the monarchy, it's a high wire balancing act that they have, which needs to uh, include both continuity and change. And, you know, when you look at something like the monarchy, you know, and I suppose if I had to then throw it over to brands as well, it's the equity that you keep and the equity that needs to kind of evolve in the context in which you kind of operate. And, you know, one of the things that's going on at the moment is quite rightly, um, you know, Prince Charles is talking about continuity at the moment. And he is specifically referencing quite rightly the continuity uh, from his mother uh, through to what he's going to be doing. He's going to mimic the dedication of a lifetime of kind of service as well. And he specifically kind of referenced that. And I think when you have an institution, obviously, but also a personality that is very tied to the monarchy, you want to uh, talk about that continuity and talk about that continuity moving forward. What will happen after this is a discussion of the changes that are required. And I suppose if you had to tie that back to a brand, that again is an example of what equity do you hold on to and what equity kind of needs to evolve in the new circumstances in which you find yourself. But I think quite rightly at the moment, uh, based on what the uh, audience needs to hear, is that they need to hear that what they're going to get is somebody that understands the values that underpinned uh, the, the, the previous, the positives of the previous iteration of the monarchy are going to continue. And I'm perfectly sure that we will hear in future those things that uh, they feel need to evolve in the current circumstances as well. And I suspect that those things will be and are quite predictably a more pared down monarchy, uh, for example, um, knowing that at the moment, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis. And I think it'll be interesting to see the coronation ceremony, I suspect will be more less lavish 
than the previous one, for example. And so we will see, even in the short term, but you know, feeding through into the longer term, a response to some of the issues that people have, particularly the kind of younger generation, about whether this is a monarchy that's kind of worth the expense uh, that it kind of incurs and mm. whether it represents the cultures uh, that it is supposedly uh, meant to kind of um, meant to represent. And you know, that will be particularly as well, I suspect, with the coronation ceremony, we might see a greater uh, representation and referral to uh, not just the UK, but to the broader cultures uh, and countries that it, uh, it uh, you know, the monarchy kind of represents, understanding that there are plenty of those that are looking at seceding from, uh, you know, the, 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 the monarchy. And so I think that a lot of that will kind of happen is this is what's going to happen is the, the, the balancing as ever with kind of brand management of what continues and what kind of changes. I'd probably add just on the reputation side in, you know, cahoots with brand is expectations today from consumers is reputation is driven by, by trust and connection and authenticity. Um, and, and so it's more than just, you know, demonstrating the duty of the royal household. It is now they're looking for that authenticity and how, who they are and, and what they do and how they connect with people. And you've seen that in the press in the last sort of 24, 48 hours, 72 hours. Um, they're really latching on to the emotions of, in particular, the, the younger generation in the royal household um, how they're, you know, whether they're holding hands as they walk through the gardens, are they, how they're communicating with each other? Is there a genuine, authentic sense of emotional connection? Can we relate to them? Are they being transparent? These are all the questions that probably you wouldn't have expected 20 years ago in, in the same space. The firm, you don't consider the firm transparent. You, you know, these aren't words or necessarily authentic. It's, it's all very duty-bound and colonial-inspired. Yeah, it's. I, I know it's obviously a, a different conversation. Al, you said it's one that will come in time. Interestingly, Roy Morgan released statistics yesterday that said an increasing majority of Australian now Australians now believe that Australia should remain a monarchy. That number going up to sixty percent, mm-hmm. rising five points since November twenty twelve. Karina, what, what steps do you think, I guess, the well, the initial steps that comms managers at Buckingham Palace will have been taking in, t- in order to, I guess, prioritise that continuity and then maybe think these are some of the first things that we need to start transforming because we do have a new figure in Charles III. He's not obviously got that same universal, I guess, reputation that the Queen, who is probably the most famous person in the world, has had. Well, if you step back even further, you've got two new heads of state in a week and that's off the back of Brexit and off all the turmoil that's followed that and and COVID. So I think the Britons are looking for real sense of security and stability. So that that consistency is so important to Al's point. But but this is a this is a real opportunity, I think. You've got all the characters in in the house. You've got the futurist, you've got the provocateur. You know, you've got the traditionalist in Charles. You've got these characters, um, the safe pair of hands. You, you could really leverage each of those to communicate in different ways a consistent message. And in doing so, you're you're presenting an innovative approach to to all things monarchy. And I think that would potentially stabilise and and 
appeal to the many versus the few. Um, you know, it is a majority still who are supportive of the monarchy uh, locally in, in England as well or in Britain. Um, but I think, you know, there's a big piece of work if we are to move away from the Royal House in or from the Commonwealth in Australia, there's a big piece of work to educate around what that actually means. A lot of people fear, fear that we lose that connection. It's a loss of protection. It's a loss of ally, alliance. Um, and there needs to be a big piece of work there. But certainly... Queen Elizabeth's passing is a huge catalyst for that conversation to be had in earnest in the, at the right time, respectfully. And, Al, obviously um, we're coming in at a time in Charles's, well, what will be his new reign, where communication is, is, I guess, a much more constant and fluid thing. You know, when the, um, the, the Queen came into power, it was kind of, you know, the stories of when she addressed young Brits during the Blitz during the war, kind of, uh, it's more of a universal type approach. Charles is kind of, uh, I guess, one of his main touch points has been something like championing climate change. Do you think maybe with this transition now, there is an opportunity for those kind of things to still be spoken about? Or do you think that that sort of brand and kind of... Um, taking issues head on will have to be kind of pulled back a little bit. Well, he's, going to, he's going to have to pick his his battles very carefully because, of course, he's moving from a uh, position of probably being a sort of more of a provocateur mm. to somebody that is now going to be need seen to be a, a kind of unifier, really, in some ways. And obviously he has a long track record of everything from Black Spider memos uh, where he scrawled stuff to kind of politicians to championing all sorts of things that were uh, sometimes seen as... Um, you know, in many ways kind of mainstream, but also, uh, you know, for example, homeopathy and everything like that are probably seen as kind of fringe as well. And so, you know, any transition, I suppose, from one position to another demands that in some ways you evolve and he's going to have to be probably less of a, more of a uh, kind of unifier. And he's probably going to have to pick macro issues that have universal support, like, for example, the environment without necessarily prescribing what needs to happen underneath them as well. And I suspect what we'll find is that they pick various issues that are in some ways either areas that uh, people are universally concerned about or indeed are areas that indicate that the monarchy is modernising. So, for example, things like social mobility, which he's done an enormous amount about with the kind of prince's trust, uh, or indeed multiculturalism, for example, or indeed just this sort of general sense of kind of meritocracy. And those are things that offset the, I suppose, sort of hereditary, isolated kind of aspects that can often be kind of attributed to the kind of monarchy. But one thing that he won't be able to do is probably prescribe solutions in the way that he has done beforehand. And that's in particular, for example, you know, it's going to be hard for him to... Uh, talk about, for example, you know, there are constitutional issues that he can't talk about now as head of state. So he can't exactly weigh in on Scottish independence, for example, <laughs> or anything like that, because he is now in a position where he needs to represent the unifying aspects of the nation rather than kind of pursue his own sort of personal causes. And I suspect what we'll find is, is that he, and I think he's already acknowledged this, is that it is a transition. And as is with anybody that transitions from one position to another, you need to adopt a, a different role and a different mode of kind of doing things. I don't think we're going to find him advocating for badger culls, for example, anymore. I suspect that he's going to be 
a more elevated and impartial kind of head of state, I suppose, and he's going to adopt he's going to adopt the, the trappings of that rather than the provocative the prince, the meddling prince, as he was once kind of you know sort of referred to. So we'll see that change, I'm sure. And they will need to, you know, you talked about kind of you know whether they need to play it safe or not. I don't necessarily think they need to play it safe, but they do need to understand that it is very important that they are seen to be engaged rather than necessarily sort of prescribing um, uh, solutions I suspect uh, because that that comes with the role that he's now now going to be in. Karina I'd be interested in kind of getting your thoughts on a similar kind of um, in a similar mm. kind of way there. I, I think the keep calm and carry on uh, mentality doesn't cut it anymore and I think I agree with Al it, it's a fine line between personal opinion and um, you know sharing meaningful, impactful um, thoughts from a thought leadership perspective versus political engagement. And, yeah, yeah it's, it's going to be a tough, tough dance for him. But, but I do think, you know, the Keep Calm and Carry On has moved to a place where we actually expect our leaders to, to hold firm views and to help guide us. Um, but, yeah, Al's right, he can't be solution-specific. He needs to. Uh, he needs to be really careful managing that. Yeah, I think we'll see that they will, they will champion various issues, mm-hmm. and then they will they will need in some ways. He will be less able to tell us, for example, what he thinks about uh, architecture, which he was so vocal on, uh, kind of you know previously or whatever. And I think, you know, they will then need to align their behaviours to some of those issues. So I think that if they are going to champion, for example, and and I think they will need to a more multicultural kind of approach. We're already seeing that he doesn't want to be called necessarily the defender of the faith, but defender of faiths, for example. Yeah. And we will need to see, for example, that if they genuinely care about uh, how ordinary, you know, ordinary citizens are kind of thriving, that the royal household will need to be looked at and it will need to be kind of pared down as a result of it. And they will need to probably start to look at who they employ within that household as well. Karina was talking about authenticity, about how people act. It's one thing to champion those issues. It's another to kind of demonstrate them. And I think the coronation, again, will be interesting because the the coronation of Queen Elizabeth was lavish and very kind of Anglo-centric, I suspect, you know, or at least imperialist in some ways in the way that it treats sort of other areas. This will be interesting in terms of how it kind of incorporates that and indeed what kind of spend is sort of attached to it as well. Because we we know that the monarchy only exists these days, although it has a constitutional role, it also exists at the behest of the people. And it's going to be vitally important they demonstrate that they are responding or at least in tune with Mm. those people as well. And I think that we'll find that they will deploy Prince William uh, and Kate, for example, as well, knowing that those two are the two most popular within the, 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 the family and they will play a role in making sure that there's a level of kind of continuity and appeal to a younger generation as well, sort of moving forward. So all of these things are, uh, are going to happen and that, that, that's the way in which you, uh, you know, demonstrate your utility and your empathy with your subjects is understanding the issues that concern them, behaving in a way that's consistent with that and deploying the people that are most likely to be uh, the best advocates of those particular kind of issues. And I think that those all those things will happen. And uh, I know you've kind of both sort of alluded to a few of the things over the course of this discussion, but um, 
I guess finally, if you were both or if either of you were sort of leading the brand or comms strategy here, what would, uh, I guess, your top line approach be? Karina, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, I think, you know, the last few years you've seen the the splintering of the household and, you know, individuals going off and doing their own thing, which to me paints paints a lack of clarity and, and sort of a lack of a clearly defined brand strategy. So some work needs to be done to determine what is the brand, where do they want it to be. Um, it seems to have become the cult of the individual rather than the collective and I think that's their greatest opportunity to bring together a brand strategy that, that drives this sense of family rather than cult, individual cultism, um, if that makes sense. I, I think, you know, get that clarity right and really define the role of, of the household versus the role of the individuals. And and it's, it's no longer about the celebrity of royalty. You know, people, people want more than that. This, this notion of um, a figurehead versus a meaningful monarch who who leads and and drives change and and supports that you know or offers stability through change that's what people are looking for in leadership um, particularly given the the environment that we're all living through regardless of where you live so a real opportunity to, to offer clarity and and education but to do so in a way that's transparent and speaks, you know, brands are making huge inroads through um, content expression and there's, again, there's opportunity there across the, the different generations to speak and engage in different ways. Charles doesn't need to get on TikTok. No one needs to see that, but he needs to acknowledge that that's where some communities like to engage and therefore let the kids do it, let, let the other, you know, members of the family engage in that way because it makes more sense for them. So it's, it's kind of saying... You know, it's not how I'd engage, but it's 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 how the people, some people want to, and therefore accept that and and yeah. try and make it work. And Al, yeah, no, I totally agree with Karina. I mean, if they haven't got a strategy in place, uh, they've had quite a while to put it there, so it'd be mm-hmm. quite extraordinary. I think they know pretty much where they're going, as far as I can make out, which is a more Scandinavian-style stripped-down uh, monarchy. I think they understand some of the issues that kind of stand in their way from a relevance perspective. And I think, as I say, they will align themselves with the big kind of issues of the day and they will behave in a way that is consistent with those those things. I think there are some real challenges coming down the pipe. Nobody pays 15 million for an autobiography if they're going to say nice things about their siblings and their parents. I think that there are already brewing republicanism debates and there are ones that are already in the Caribbean have have kind of occurred. And those, you know, responding to that is going to be really interesting, how you deal with the vestiges of empire and everything like that. I think Prince Charles has already got a strategy in place for that anyway, is understanding and acknowledging the the downsides of the past as well. But I think, you know, inevitably... There's the, and then obviously there's the Prince Andrew issue as well. And then there will be subsequent scrutiny. You know, Prince Charles is much more scrutinised than Queen Elizabeth in terms of his public pronouncements as well. So there are going to be a lot of things that they're going to need to deal with moving forward that are going to be bumps in the road. And I suspect that anticipating what those bumps are going to be uh, has been a major part of what they've been up to. And I suspect that they've got a pretty you know, they, they should and could have a pretty good strategy in place. And as I say, it would be pretty much 
exactly what kind of Karina is saying is, is not only just the channels that you use, but the way in which you deal with some of those issues. I think if people want to secede from the monarchy, that's going to need to be dealt with, uh, not with a sense of kind of imperialism and frustration, but possibly kind of forbearance and understanding. And the monarchy may shrink in terms of its geographical influence, but it may grow in terms of public kind of sympathy for it in understanding that times have changed and that it may represent fewer people, but it may represent them more powerfully as a result as well. One thing that struck me in, in preparing for this discussion is that a lot of the criticisms being raised by Megan in particular um, and her followers is around the absurdity of the, the pomp and, and ceremony and traditions, etc. These are things that Diana raised um, in her time and I just I find it fascinating that there's this appetite, seemingly an appetite now for an open discussion around these, these matters and... Uh, perhaps a reflection of the fact that society has progressed so far and yet the royal, the firm hasn't in many ways. So yeah. I just, yeah, it was an interesting reflection. I, I think it's a great point. And I think, you know, this is another reason why they will start to look at, for example, uh, who they employ uh, and how they, uh, you, how, how the kind of, uh, if, you know, how people behave within that employment, because I think that debate Diana raised, as you say, has been kind of repeated. And I suspect that if the monarchy is to be seen to be representative of a broader multicultural Britain and society, that is something that absolutely they will heed and understand. Mm-hmm. I think those conversations are already underway about a royal household that is seen as a relative kind of uh, jobs for the, the boys and girls kind of thing will probably open up in terms of its, op- its employment opportunities and be more transparent about its kind of employment practices as well uh, in a way that it never has been before. And I think you're absolutely right, is that the, the, this period of scrutiny that's going to come with the autobiography, with, uh, um, with the vocal nature of, uh, of um, Megan, w- will be a force for, for change and where they need to show a progressive uh, element. Otherwise, they're going to find themselves in, in, in difficulty very quickly. Yeah, certainly a fascinating period to come and... Um, some certainly fascinating insights from you both as well there. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on today and share them with us. No problems. Thanks, Kelly. See you next time. Cheers. Thank you. That is it for another week of the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a review if you enjoy the show and have any feedback for us. Just a heads up with the public holiday next Thursday and Friday if you're in Victoria as well. We're going to take a week off from normal scheduling, but you'll find a special interview with Nine's Michael Stevenson in your feed on Tuesday. Thanks, Emma. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Callum. Good to talk to you both. Thanks, Laurie. Let's go have a drink. And uh, thanks again to Al and Karina. See you next week. Bye.